0: Testing one two three. Testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight we have a special episode in which I am going to interview Bill Reel about something very specific and near and dear to Bill Reel's heart, which is the fact that for a period of time, Bill Reel was involved with, heavily involved with, the organization known as Fair or more recently known as Fair Mormon. Good evening, Bill, how
1: are you doing? I am doing exceptional, RFM. As usual, just glad to have this chance to sit down with you and have this conversation.
0: Well, let's start off with FAIR, now known as Fair Mormon. Let me just give a brief overview of FAIR. I did a bit of research in preparation for this interview with you. Now, FAIR stands for what, Bill?
1: Is it the Foundation of Apologetic Information and Research, right? Yes, so the questions are only going to get That's harder. That's okay. Here on <laughs> no problem. It's early. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got it here in front
0: of me. Though. And I have the same trouble when I'm trying to remember what it stands for. But it's the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. It is a nonprofit organization that was started in 1997, so over 20 years ago now, when a group of people got together and decided they wanted to be in the business of defending the faith, the LDS faith, that is, and providing answers to questions and responses to criticisms of the LDS church. Can you tell the audience a little bit about the different things that FAIR, now FAIR Mormon, and I'm just gonna call it FAIR Mormon now because a few years ago, actually, it was August of 2013, they changed their name to FAIR Mormon. So I'll just start calling it FAIR Mormon now since that's the name. By the way, FAIR Mormon seems to be A problematic name, given the fact it's been about half a year now, that President Nelson, the prophet, seer, and revelator for the LDS Church, has directed its membership
1: not to use the name Mormon anymore in referring to the church. Yeah, they're going to have to make a shift, huh? Because uh, Satan is getting victories left and right over there, fair Mormon, and uh, Jesus and God are heavily offended. Uh, although Elder Bednar would argue that you have to choose to be offended. So Heavenly Father and Jesus, all you have to do is choose not to be offended. Uh, But Satan is getting victories left and right. Right. And for an organization that seems to be so much in lockstep with the leadership
0: of the church and so closely affiliated with the church, though there's technically no official association with the church, as you know. And I put official in air quotes while I was saying it there, Bill. Yeah, they keep using the name Fair Mormon. So they need to get on that, really. They need to find a way of describing their organization that does not include the name Mormon. But we'll leave that up to them and see how long it takes them
1: to get on board with what the president of the church is saying. I, I think on some level, it's a little frustrating for them because it's not too long ago that they changed that name. In fact, it was while I was with them. And, uh, they put a lot of time into that change. They they did some research. They did some surveys. They I know they spent some money on trying to collect data on what would be the best name change to go to. And now here we are just a few years later, and they're having to do it again.
0: Yeah. So Fair Mormon has a website that you can go to. I think it's fairmormon.org. You can find it on the internet. And when you go there, you find a number of things. The main thing that you find Is that there is a whole list and I mean a long list of issues and questions relating to the LDS Church that if you have a question about it you can click on the link and you can find what Fair Mormon has to say and their apologetic response to whatever that particular question is. In addition to that Fair Mormon has a podcast that one is called the Mormon Faircast and this Mormon podcast this Mormon Faircast was so popular that it won an award for best podcast in the religious inspiration category in 2013 of the People's Choice Podcast Awards. And I I understand that you'll have an interesting story to tell us about that as well. Yeah, and so do you want me to go into that here? Well, can we start off with the fact that I just want to say that I was heavily into Mormon apologetics back in the 1980s. And if Fair Mormon had been around at that time, that would have been an organization that i would have wanted to be working with and heavily involved with
1: yeah it it was certainly a big part of my life then because i knew there were messy issues and i knew people were struggling and uh, i wanted i wanted there to be answers i wanted mormonism to be what it claimed to be and here's this organization that's saying look you can still hang on there there are criticisms, but these criticisms have holes in them, and here's the solutions. And so, I think for for most of us who realize, like, uh oh, something's not right here, uh, fair Mormon is a is a natural place to, to find on the internet to try and resolve those concerns. And it feels uh, at the onset like like these guys are simply saying, like, hey, the the, the playing field isn't fair. Uh, no pun intended. The playing field isn't fair and uh, we've got answers to these problems, and so let's sit down and let's have this conversation, let's work these things out. Right, and before we get into your personal
0: story, I just want to talk with you a little bit about this very interesting phenomenon that has developed in the LDS church, which is that we have, or claim to have, 15 leaders in the church who are all prophets, seers, and revelators, and that's the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. Those are the individuals who can speak with authority for what it is the church believes and what the doctrine of the church is. And yet, it appears that none of those members, none of those prophets, seers, and revelators ever wants to weigh in on any of the questions that people have about the church, about its history, about its doctrine, about problematic issues that more and more members are having with the church. And the situation has developed to where self-appointed Defenders of the faith, like the members of FAIR, come forward and they say, we're going to do this job. And the answers we give are our best shots at answering these questions. They're not authoritative, they're not binding on the LDS church. And meanwhile, the leaders of the LDS church are very happy, it appears, to allow FAIR and other associations like them and other people like them to go forward and defend the church while they sit there while the leaders sit back with their arms crossed.
1: What are your thoughts about this situation, Bill? It, it certainly seems as though the church wants to have it both ways. and here's what I mean. In, in the last few months, we've had multiple leaders in the top 15 share that they have read the entire Joseph Smith papers project. Uh, Elder Renland, I think, said that. Um, I'm trying to think who else. I know that the, I think it was Elder Cook has said it. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, there is one more in the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency who said that. And they essentially say, look, we've read the entire Joseph Smith Papers Project, all of it, and there's not a problem there. It, it's just been faith building for us. And then on the other hand, these guys want to have, for instance, Elder uh, Cook has Matthew Grow and Kate Holbrook on, And he says, look, I'm not the historian. I don't know these things. I don't have good answers to the historical questions. I'll give those off to these people. And so you have the leaders of the church who, at every turn besides General Conference, have somebody else speak for them. They they will have the public relations department or Mormon newsroom share various things. They'll have their PR guys uh, come out and say stuff when there's something controversial in the news. Recently, the PR group came out, and I can't remember exactly what the question was that was asked, but it was in regards to how to handle what past profits have said. And it might be in regards to the name change, and it might be that recent – I think it was a New York Times article or uh, a a big-time newspaper talking about the idea of – the church uh, trying to shift in what it wants it to be called. And the PR guys were asked about what past leaders had said. And the PR guys answered, like, the nice thing is that we have living prophets and living prophets essentially uh, trump dead prophets. Right. I know what you're
0: talking about, Bill. That was a recent CNN article about the name change of the church. It's
1: never the leaders of the church that are out front. And so with Fair Mormon, they have this organization that is not directly connected to them. I think that's true. My experience with Fair Mormon is that they are not the church. They're not the same entity. And and while the church, I think, in some ways does fund some money to Fair Mormon, uh, there's, a, there's a group called the More Good Foundation. And there's been some data that shows that some money from the church gets funneled to them, and then they funnel money back to organizations like Fair Mormon, and so it keeps everybody a couple of layers away so that there's not a direct connection that can be criticized. And so Fair Mormon will uh, certainly defend the church and offer these answers, but as you point out, those answers are not quote-unquote official, and yet the leaders of the church claim they understand the data And they don't want to speak on these issues. Fair Mormon, if they say something, it can easily be dismissed as not the official position of the church. The church doesn't really want to tell you what its official position is or answer questions on these things. And yet the leaders of the church are in the background telling you they're aware of all of this stuff. And and to add one more layer to it, if you go back to Elder Holland's conversation with the guy from the BBC, it becomes quite clear, especially when Elder Holland is asked the question on the book of Abraham translation, That Elder Holland understands the problems, he understands the apologetic solutions, and that he's uncomfortable diving into the question because he understands the answers he has aren't really satisfactory. And so he stammers and stutters and he tries to avoid the question. Uh, I think this is the case. I think these guys do know the issues. But they don't want to talk about them because they know there's not satisfactory answers. And so it's easy for a group like Fair Mormon to be out front for the church, to take all the hits, uh, to offer answers, but to say those aren't official positions. And then it allows everybody to kind of uh, deflect to each other and nobody's really accountable for anything said.
0: Yes. And in addition to the website and the podcast that Fair Mormon does, they also have an annual conference in Utah. And they've had that since 1998. And I went and did some research, and it looks like a couple of years ago, Michael Otterson, the head of the church public relations department at the time, actually spoke at the Fair Mormon Conference. Is that correct, Bill?
1: Yeah, it was maybe 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. Yeah, my thought is, is that of
0: course, Michael Otterson, anybody who's the head of the church public relations department does not speak anywhere without getting the okay from the church leadership yeah that has to be the case uh yeah and so it suggests to me a tacit recognition and endorsement if not official connection but a tacit recognition and endorsement by the lds church of fair mormon if they're going to allow their head of public relations to speak at their conference
1: yeah and uh and even to, to go maybe a step further than that, um, the church on its website, I think even in some of these gospel topic essays, it will point people back to Fair Mormon resources. And then maybe about a year ago or so, a year and a half ago, two years ago, the church came out with uh, a list of safe places to go to get answers to your questions. Uh, and one of the things they pointed people towards was the the Fair Mormon website.
0: Right. So Fair Mormon actually then appears on the church website as a safe place to go as a resource to get answers to church questions. And I believe you can actually click to the link from the church website to get to the Fair Mormon
1: website. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they do. I think they link that in uh, at least at one or two places they do. Um, and, the, and the, you know, Fair Mormon does a lot of things. So we've talked about, they do the podcast and there's more than one podcast uh, that they do. Uh, they also have some of their work which is designed towards just the youth of the church. So those conversations are slightly different uh, than what they're doing generally. They, they have uh, you know, the conferences which you've spoken uh, to. Uh, they also uh, will write articles. They have a blog where they'll write articles where they share evidences of the church or address criticisms of the church. And I also know that they have a
0: monthly newsletter newsletter. That they send out electronically, and you could subscribe to that. And in fact, a number of years ago, I was subscribed to that, and I did get their monthly newsletter on issues relating to the church.
1: Yeah, and the last thing that they do is this idea of answering questions. And so, members of the church who run into problems can reach out to Fair Mormon. They can send questions in anonymously. And when those questions get sent in, uh, the way it works is that if you're a member of Fair Mormon, And you do have to make a donation to them to be on the inside with them. It's not—it's not a free thing. Which no big deal. I mean, that's—that's it. People have costs to do stuff. I do find it funny that they sometimes accuse you know folks like you and me of priestcraft because we ask for donations and because we take funds in to do the work that we do, and meanwhile they also take funds in and accept donations as well. But. When a question comes in, it essentially gets sent out to the entire group. And then behind the scenes, this group will have a conversation about the best way to answer that question. And and sometimes you can just shoot off an answer back if it's a simple enough question. But if it's a difficult question, there will be four or five, six people behind the scenes who are talking about the best way to approach it. Especially when the person you answer writes you back again and says like, well, this has this problem and this has that problem with your answers. I'm wondering if you have anything better than that. And so then they'll start bouncing things off each other. And so there's this coordinated effort behind the scenes. And again, there's no big deal with this. I I don't see uh, any kind of negative to it, Um, but it does come out later in some of the issues that I had uh, as I kind of ran my time through Fair Mormon. There's certain ways they want you to address the questioner. And there's, and there's certain ways they want you to kind of avoid uh, going into uh, when you answer the questioner, but they do that as well. And so they, they have a, a wide scope of things that they're doing to try to answer the critics. Um, it should be noted, and this comes out too as we kind of have this conversation, is that Fair Mormon, their main priority, and, and I think if you have questions about the church, you need to understand this, their main priority is to protect the church. It is, it is to ensure that they protect the good name of the church. And because that's their priority, you as a questioner, you are a secondary uh, concern. And so, yes, they want to answer your questions. But if answering your questions is going to hurt the good name of the church, then they're going to choose to protect the good name of the church as a priority first. I tell you what, I want to get into your involvement with Fair Mormon.
0: But before we do that, I just wanted to tie off our discussion about this relationship between the leaders of the church who don't answer questions about church history and self-appointed apologists who do answer questions about church history. Because I remember that in the Swedish rescue, members in Sweden had a lot of questions about church history and it got to the point where the church decided they needed to make an official response to this. So instead of sending over any church leaders or general authorities to talk to the members of the church about it, and by that I mean general authorities, apostles, people who could speak with authority to answer their questions, instead of sending anybody over like that in the top 15, instead they sent over Marlon Jensen, who was the head of the church history department, and Richard Turley, who was another member of the church history department. And the reason I bring that up Is because I remember that in the question and answer session that they had at the Swedish rescue, there was at least one Swedish member who raised that point and said, why doesn't the church send us over somebody who can answer our questions with authority? Because the historians are up there saying, look, we don't bind the church. Our answers are not binding on the church. We don't speak for the church. And the response was, which they voiced was, well, why didn't the church send somebody over Who could speak for the church? Why send you guys over? Why not send somebody over who can answer our questions with authority? And so in some ways, I get this idea in my head that it's like Batman and Robin going to the Penguin's lair. And the Penguin has all these henchmen, right? And so there's going to be this big fight. But Batman sits back with his arms crossed and lets Robin do all the fighting.
1: Yeah. And meanwhile, Batman has the Batmobile. He's got his uh, utility belt with all the weapons on it. He's got the fighting skills, and uh, he lets his buddy take all the punches.
0: Right, and if that's the way it really happened in Batman, after a while, he would start wondering if Batman really does have any fighting skills, if he really does have any technology in his utility belt, if he really does have a Batmobile. Yeah, so it's just this interesting dynamic that's going on in the church and has for the last several decades. I suppose it started with farms, but let's go to your involvement with Fair Mormon, how did you get involved with Fair
1: Mormon, Bill? So back in 2012, John Dolin interviews me for the first time. Uh, I was a sitting bishop, and I understood to some level these issues. And because I was a sitting bishop, and because I understood uh, the complicated issues of Mormonism, and again, to a very surface-level degree compared to maybe where I am today— John wanted to sit down and have that conversation. So we do that interview. And when I get done with the interview, I think to myself, you know, this, this wasn't that bad. This was something I enjoyed doing. I wonder if I could do a podcast. And uh, so I ended up going over to Walmart, bought myself a, a generic $20 microphone and went back home and started recording episodes and started the podcast Mormon Discussion. With, and it was immediately, it was like that day or the next day that I did that. And immediately, Steve Densley, who is the, who is now the vice president of Ferry, second in, second in charge, I believe. And uh, he reached out to me and said, Bill, I really enjoyed your conversation with John. Uh, I really enjoy some of the episodes that you're putting out for your podcast. I wonder if you would come on board and do a podcast with us and have these same kinds of conversations. And I said, absolutely. And there's, there's little uh, tidbits of things that kind of need to be understood by the listener because I think there was confusion behind the scenes at Fair Mormon with some of this. I was adamant with Steve Densley that to do two podcasts was overwhelming and that I was not going to discontinue my own. And so Steve gave me uh, permission to run my episodes on both venues And so I would interview, say I would interview Terrell Givens or Richard Bushman. When those interviews were done, I would publish those episodes both on my podcast as well as on Fair Mormons. And I know there were people behind the scenes at Fair Mormon who were criticizing that, saying that I was essentially using Fair Mormon as a venue to publish my work, but that was the agreement we had. And so I couldn't understand the confusion only because... It seems as though Steve must have never taken the time to explain to the people on that side that I had permission to publish that work in both places because he constantly kept telling me that people were criticizing me for doing that. Um, It it seemed like a strange dynamic. But we did, so this would have been 2012, probably the very end of 2012 uh, or the beginning of 2013, when I start doing podcast work with Fair Mormon, and, and I think what I did was a great quality. And I essentially was the majority of the episodes that they were running on their podcast. And they were, uh, again, some of them were monologues, just like I do now. Some of them were interviews with scholars or historians or authors, And very quickly, comments start coming into Fair Mormon about how much people are enjoying these episodes. I still have emails from Steve Densley where he's saying like, hey, we got another three messages this week where people are just saying like, this was really good. And I got, I just got another message from my dad this morning that he really enjoyed this conversation. And so there's, there's this conversation going on where he's letting me know that there's a, there's positive feedback. And there really isn't any criticism of the episodes themselves, uh, at least not early on. And by the end of 2013, as you pointed out a little bit ago, uh, Fair Mormon won the podcast awards uh, that year for, uh, religious, for the religious uh, category. And in the beginning, that's kind of funny now because I think I think it's still on YouTube somewhere. But you can go watch it, and, and a representative fair Mormon gets a, a little trophy and goes up to the front and and thanks various people. And so as we get into this story where they remove me, and we'll get into this kind of as we go along, it's funny to look back and realize that from this from the the stage at the microphone, they're announcing who they're who they're sending thanks out to for putting this podcast together and for winning this award. And and my name is is in that mix. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was enjoyable to be part of FAIR, but I wasn't only doing their podcast. I was also answering questions behind the scenes to people who had run into problems, uh, the messy issues, the sticky issues with the church as well. Right. And earlier on, you
0: said that there was a priority that the people at Fair Mormon had when answering questions, that those answers were to be given in such a way as that it framed the church in the best possible light, that the person asking the question was really a secondary consideration. Do you have any examples of that?
1: Uh, When people would send in, and and maybe not like specifics, although again, I think I can go back into my email and find some of these, and maybe maybe we could link a couple of them so people could see this. But when you send a question in, and let's say you pick something that's really problematic, say race and priesthood, and you're wanting, I mean, as a, as a person who's run into this as a sticky issue, you're wanting to reconcile how prophets, seers, and revelators could get something so adamantly wrong. When you would send your question in, they would then, this group of fair Mormon volunteers behind the scenes, they would reach out to you via email and send you an email back and say, here's the answer to your problem. If you were to then follow that up with the next logical question, which then walks the apologist side of things into this being way more problematic, they would stay away from answering you directly. And if somebody on Fair Mormon's side got into the conversation and said, hey, look, you're right. This is really problematic. And some of this doesn't add up and uh, you know the critic has a good argument here, and here's the apologetic answer, but it it really doesn't work that well because as you're seeing, the next question walks us into that being more messy than we're than we're answering you with. If you go down any path that looks anything like that, where you are validating that the critic has uh, a better hold of this issue than the apologist does, if you answer it that way, immediately behind the scenes. Steve Densley and other leaders with Fair Mormon would reach out to you by email and would essentially slap your hand and say, we don't really go about things this way. We do not put forth the critic as having any strength of argument, that our job is to give the apologetic response and not to get into the conversation of whether that response is satisfactory or not. Like our job is to answer it with the faithful answer in a way that protects the church, makes the church look good and holds up the truth claims. And we are to steer clear of posing it in any way that adds strength or weight to the critic's argument. And you can imagine like that sounds, maybe that sounds reasonable to the listener right now. You're like, Hey, these guys, this is a side they're on. This is what they do. But, but the trouble is that when people write, they're not only writing because they have a problem, they're also sharing that they are in the middle of what they think is a faith crisis. And they're experiencing emotional turmoil, and they are struggling deeply and hurting over the fact that these issues are messy and don't add up. And so for me, it became a point where I realized that to just throw out the apologetic answer and not to validate how messy this really gets was dismissive of the questioner. It wasn't fair to them. It wasn't uh, It wasn't the way I would want to be treated. And so when someone comes in with a question, I wanted to reach out and say, look, some of these questions have good answers. Some of these questions have less satisfactory answers. Here's the data. Here's the argument. Here's both sides. Here's the places to look. And essentially, like, here's all the information. Go do your own study. Go make your own decision. And the moment I started to do that, there becomes this deep resistance where I'm getting messages behind the scenes telling me you can't do that. And, and so at some point, it became so tense uh, that we eventually, we eventually part ways. Interesting. Now, I want to mention something else about
0: Fair Mormon, which has been remarked upon by others. And that is the fact, as we discussed, that if you go to the website, you end up having a huge list of questions about the church. Basically, any criticism that has ever been made about the church, I think it's fair to say, is responded to in some way or
1: other on the Fair Mormon website. Is that correct? Yeah, I think every single possible problem that one wants to discuss within the church has been addressed in some way, shape, or form. Uh, on Fair Mormon.
0: Right, and so a person who has one question and one issue that they've discovered about the LDS Church that's causing them some problems, they want to research it a little bit further, somehow they get pointed toward Fair Mormon. They go to the Fair Mormon website in order to find out what the answer is to that question. And instead of finding out that there's one answer to that question, they also find out that there's hundreds of other questions and criticisms about the LDS Church that had never occurred to them. And then they start clicking on those links as well. And pretty soon, they are going down the rabbit hole. So, I just want to mention what rabbit hole is. It gets used an awful lot. I think most people know what it means. But we're also going to talk about a memory hole later on. Because I think that Fair Mormon ends up being both a rabbit hole and a memory hole. But first off, the rabbit hole. It's an expression from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland And means it's a metaphor for an entry into the unknown, the disorienting, or the mentally deranging. And we also use it in terms of the way it's used in computing or computers. It's a computing term that is used when developing software to describe going further and further off track, chasing problems discovered while you're already off the track. And it can also mean chasing a problem too deep and too far. So the reason I call Fair Mormon a rabbit hole is for people who go there and they end up going there for one answer to one question and they end up finding there's hundreds of other criticisms about it and that's what sends many people who go to Fair Mormon down the rabbit hole. I wanted to mention to you one quote that I got off the internet from a person who posted about their experience in Fair Mormon. And I'm going to end up asking you if you know of any other similar situations or any experiences you've had that are like this. Here's the quote from this person. He or she says, Fair Mormon was my exit gateway. After reading all of the truth issues, I went there as refuge and salvation to my doubt and confusion. It was pretty well understood that the church offered no answers officially and that they used farms and Fair Mormon as their go-to guys, so I looked for the answers I needed, primarily for Abraham, the book of Abraham, I'm assuming. They were so bad, so deceptive, and in the context of response attempts to other questions, so compartmentalized that it undermined and contradicted other answers that they had. There was no other conclusion than that they were deliberately obfuscating and deceiving. And this comment concludes, what was also clear was that there were no answers. It was a fraud, just like I was afraid. Fair was my exit tool. So there's a lot of pieces to that, but basically this person describing that fair Mormon ended up leading them out of the church. Have you had any experiences like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen over the last Uh, Well, I mean, four, five, six years, People, when people talk about their exit from the church, one of the questions that always comes up is like, what was the big thing? What was the the thing that broke the shelf? And a lot of people point to, for instance, the Race and Priesthood Essay on LDS.org. A lot of people point to Fair Mormon's website. A lot of people point to the CES letter. But those tend to be kind of the big three. It's not that people go, hey, I, I read Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History. I read Richard Bushman's uh, Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, I read uh, The Godmakers. I read uh, Shadow of Reality by Gerald and Sandra Tanner. It, it's not those things. The three big ones are the CES letter, the LDS Gospel Topic Essays, and Fair Mormon's website. And so I've seen numerous people who say, just as you just pointed out, I had this one question, why? My friend told me that there is uh, masonry in the temple. And so I went to Fair Mormon and I wanted to get an answer to why there was masonry in the temple. I click on their site, I go to their glossary, and I now have a monitor screen full of a thousand issues. And as I click one after the other, I learned things I had never known and then there's the next step. It's, it's one thing to realize there's a thousand issues you never knew. That's bad enough. But then when you click each of these and try to get the answers, a lot of people realize those answers aren't rational or logical or even bigger. And this doesn't happen when you see these problems in a vacuum. But when you see the, the problems collectively, you're looking at 100 issues. you just clicked on 25 things today and 25 things tomorrow and 25 things the following day. You know before you know it, you're into hundreds of issues, and you realize that the, for the apologetic answers to work, the line of reasoning has to shift 180 from one question to the next. So on some situation, they might need Joseph Smith to be uneducated. And then in another situation, they would need Joseph Smith to be really smart. In one situation, we need it to be the missing papyri. In another situation, we have to have it be the catalyst theory. When you start to realize over the collective breadth of these issues that one line of reasoning cannot be held on to, and we have to constantly be changing hills and changing ground that we're fighting from, you begin to realize like, oh, if I pick one way like this is, this is how it holds up. It holds up this way against the collective issues that will fail. Then suddenly people find themselves just essentially exiting the church. And So yes, a lot of people point to Fair Mormon and the expansiveness of the issues they cover and the logic which they use to answer those things as being their exit from the church.
0: Right. Can I bring up another thing that I, I hear about anecdotally from time to time? which is that people go to Fair Mormon because they hear something that is alarming to them about the church or its history, and they go to find the answer, and the answer that they are hoping that they will find, and frankly, I think that they expect they will find, is that what they have heard is simply not true. It is an anti-Mormon lie. And so they go to Fair Mormon, and they click on the subject, and what they find is not that it's a lie— what they find is that it's actually true. And so there's an admission at the outset that it's true, whether it's Joseph Smith's practice of uh, polygamy or sources relied on by Joseph Smith in translating the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham or the Joseph Smith translation, things that you and I have talked about before. But there's a myriad of these kinds of issues. And they go to the website at Fair Mormon, and they find out that actually what the critic is saying is true. And then Fair Mormon tries to put a positive or apologetic spin on it. So these are the kind of answers that I call, yeah, but. So yeah, it's true, but it's not that bad because of this, 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 and this. And I think that a lot of people go to Fair Mormon expecting to find, no, it's not true. And instead they find, yeah, but, and they click on another link and they find, yeah, but. And then another one, yeah, but. So it's a bunch of yeah, buts on there. And that is very disconcerting to members too.
1: Yeah, and it goes back to what you talked about earlier, which is that the leaders of the church refuse to stand up and to address these issues directly. And in our culture, and even in some of our official publications, Enzyme articles and the like, there's this use of the word anti-Mormon. And we grow up in Mormonism with an understanding that the things that counter our truth claims, they are anti-Mormon lies. And nobody in the church ever chooses to stand up and to address these issues head on. And so when you find yeah, but on fair Mormon, you're left with no other choice but to feel betrayed because you grew up in a system that allowed you to think these things were untrue, that never went into any of these issues to give you any basis to believe they were true. And then essentially allows you to go to this other third party site who are supposed to be defending the church, but who are acknowledging that every one of these problems actually does exist. Right. And we hear, I think pretty
0: much every general conference, and I expect we'll be hearing at least one talk in the upcoming general conference. So this will be my prophecy, Bill. Okay. Uh, Some kind of reference to criticisms of the church, nothing specific about what those specific criticisms are, but some vague aspersion that critics of the church are taking their information, it's out of context, it's a distortion, it's something that is not true. And that in order to get the real true version of what the church believes and of church history, you have to go to church-approved sources to find it.
1: And then when you go to those church-approved sources they lack the full story, they are whitewashed, and they don't really want to walk you into the problem either.
0: Right. And if you go to the Fair Mormon, which is now a church-approved source, you find out that actually all these criticisms are not distortions. They're not taken out of context. They are actually the truth.
1: Yeah. And so then you feel betrayed because your religious system didn't trust you to be mature or intelligent enough to tell you its problems.
0: Right. And then the fallback position that we'll hear from the church is, well, we never hit anything.
1: It's your fault for not studying enough. Yeah. Which is a really piss poor excuse when officially, for instance, go back to before the LDS.org gospel topic essays, when you would type in the word uh, polyamory or even polygamy, the search results were zilch. There was nothing. There was, unless you went on to family search and happened to have the idea of, let me look up Joseph Smith, our founder, and see what what it says about him on family search. Unless you did that, you had no way, like, yes, you have section 132, but again, our lesson manuals avoid certain verses in that section, and the lesson manual is adamant that the conversation avoids certain aspects, specifically polygamy, and hence, it's nice to say, like, you should have known we have Section 132. Well, the reality is the church avoids talking about 132 at all costs, even in the lesson that discusses Section 132. And so members have no way to know Joseph Smith was a polygamist. Members have no way to know the individual stories behind his polygamy with Lucy Walker or Fanny Alger, or the Partridge sisters, or the Lawrence sisters, or Sylvia Sessions uh, and her mom, Patty Sessions. Like, we don't learn these stories. We don't learn that Joseph approached 12-year-old Mary Elizabeth Rawlings-Leitner and proposed that she at some point be a plural wife of his, but we do tell stories about her saving the Book of Commandments in her dress. Um, The church intentionally avoids conversations, and then when members hear about this messiness, They look for answers. There's nothing on the church about them. So they go and find Fair Mormon. And now Fair Mormon has no choice but to have answered everything. And what you find is a buffet of problems. Right. Well, let's go back to your experience with Fair Mormon. Now, how long were you there, Bill? Um, Again, I'm going back to just memory. My gut tells me I was there maybe a year and a half or so. That seems about the right amount of time. I think it was at least a year And I don't think it was anything more than a year and a half. Okay. And in that
0: brief time, you, at least with your help and contributions, were able to boost the Fair Mormon podcast up to the point where it won a People's Choice Award for the Religion Inspiration category.
1: Yeah, that I think is the last time they won. Now, it does deserve a caveat. It's nice to say like, hey, I joined up and we won this thing, and it's, it, you know it had a large chunk to do with what I was submitting to them, but that's not entirely fair either, and here's why. on some level, Fair Mormon also kind of cheats in that system, and here's how they do it. They have a ton of members, um, I don't know, let's say 150 people in Fair Mormon who are behind the scenes answering questions, doing the paperwork to the office type stuff, running the bookstore, uh, you know those kinds of things. When any year that this podcast awards comes out, and and I again, I know this just because of the fact that I'm there while this 2013 podcast uh, voting process is happening, the leadership of Fair Mormon is encouraging its 150 members every day to go on and vote as many times as they can possibly sit in front of a monitor and keep pushing the button. In other words, there was no limit on the amount of votes that people could do. So it's not... It's not like your podcast or my podcast where, and this is the story with most podcasts, there's one or two or three people kind of running things. And those one or two, three people don't have the ability as the organization themselves to skew the voting. But Fair Mormon is such a large organization that it has the ability, if a hundred of its members go on to the voting process, and click vote for Fair Mormon a hundred times each, it has the ability to deeply skew the voting process. So while we won that year, and while I would like to take some of the credit for that, and I think it is deserved, I also want to recognize that in some ways Fair Mormon also kind of cheats the system because a large chunk of the votes for Fair Mormon don't come from the listeners, but come from the actual members of Fair Mormon themselves. Was this
0: something that the leadership of Fair Mormon was asking the volunteers to do?
1: Yeah, they would. They would encourage the volunteers at Fair Mormon to uh, vote it up, and it was with the argument that if we win this, we give we give Fair Mormon and the church uh, some good publicity. That we essentially uh, allow people who are watching these podcast awards. To see that, oh, look at this, there's this fair cast, there's this Fair Mormon podcast, and they just won. I'm going to go check them out. And so it was a way to give exposure to their podcast. And so, yes, the Fair Mormon leadership behind the scenes would encourage their members to take a large role in voting uh, their podcast up. Well, fortunately, we have the actual audio from when the Mormon Faircast won
0: the People's Choice Award for Best Podcast in a Religious or Inspirational Category. Play the tape. All right, religion inspiration, speaking of which,
2: a survival guide for Christian men. Are you just watching? Apparently they are. Catholic Vitamins, Feeding My Faith, Inappropriate Conversations, More Than One Lesson, Mormon cast. Is that produced by the same people about the polyamory stuff? No? Okay. Just checking. I'm geotagging the podcast. You shut up. The Break with Father Roderick. The... S- the s- you know, if they did this at the Academy Awards... People go, really? Did George Clooney just scream out, yeah! <laughs> the sci fi Christian and Zen cast, and your winner is the Mormon Faircast. <laughs> Are you with us? Fantastic. That's great. I'd like you to note that he's the only person accepting an award that's wearing a suit. How are you, sir? Nice to see you. I
3: didn't want to make you look bad. You're I understand. Thank
2: you very much. Congratulations. You know,
3: last year an atheist group won this uh, category, which seems like the fox guard and the chicken coop. But uh, yes, I'm glad to accept this award on behalf of Faircast, a uh, Mormon. Uh, uh, you know what? It's killing me here, and it's
2: even being recorded. Uh, Maybe we're being pranked.
3: Mormon Faircast, no, 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 trust me. I do want to thank uh, what Bill and say. Nick trust Skarsbrick me. and Martin Tanner for their great effort on uh, Mormon Faircast. So thank you.
0: I love the audio on that awards presentation, Bill. And if you listen closely, you can actually hear your name being listed as number one out of three when the person accepting the award is giving thanks for all the hard work to help the podcast win the award. So it sounds like your time there at Fair Mormon was relatively brief. You said it was maybe a year, maybe a little bit more than a year, correct?
1: Yeah, somewhere between a year and a year and a half.
0: And that maybe you were not the best fit for the kind of thing that Fair Mormon was doing. How was it that you ended up parting ways with Fair Mormon?
1: So at some point, the the messages are becoming more and more regular, where leaders of Fair Mormon are uh, reaching out to me privately, uh, specifically Steve Densley, but also John Lynch as well, and saying something like, hey, Bill, we saw where you wrote this thing over here in this venue, and that's not the answers or the conversations we want a member of Fair Mormon to be having. We don't want you giving validation to the critic or the critic's side of the argument. They were also getting critical feedback from other people. One example would be Scott Lloyd, who is uh, who works for the Deseret News. I believe he's an editor there. And uh, Scott Lloyd was reaching out to Fair Mormon and saying, like, this Bill Real guy, he's saying this, he's saying that. Um, he's making me very uncomfortable with you, with you, Fair Mormon. And so, as those kinds of comments came in, essentially, the folks at Fair Mormon sensed that the ground that I held and the ground that they held was becoming too far apart. And so the kind of the last straw, and I don't remember the specific subject it was on, but it was Steve Densley reaching out to me and essentially saying like, that's it. Like you cannot anymore do these things. You you know, you can't say this kind of stuff. You can't uh, talk about the critics answers in these ways. And, and that's it. And I wrote him back and said, like, all I can do is be honest to myself. All I can do is hold the ground that I hold and try to be fair to the church, but also be responsible to the data. And the conversation, if I remember right, got a little heated, nothing like mean said, but just like firm, you know, both of us were kind of firm pointing back at the other and saying this, you know, this has to stop and I can't stop this. And uh, within a few minutes, my login uh, rights to Fair Mormon were, were removed. I no longer had the ability to log into uh, the system as a member to take part in the organization. And so I reached out to John Lynch and shared with him what had just transpired. And he promised me that it had to be some kind of mistake or misunderstanding uh, and that he would resolve the issue behind the scenes uh, but within a day or so, it became clear through his correspondence that he was not going to be able to repair uh, the fracture that had occurred. So John reached out to me and said, Bill, like this isn't going to work, um, so we're going to part ways. We wonder if you'd be willing to do a, a podcast where you and I talk with each other uh, and just tell the audience that we are parting ways and that your mission is going off in this direction and our mission is going off in that direction. And we're friendly, you know, we're shaking hands, we're patting each other on the back and we're just in friendly ways, uh, gonna, gonna separate and do our own thing. And so we had that conversation. I think that's still out there. I'll try to find it so we can link that to this episode as well. And and so essentially we did that episode and we parted ways Um, But it wasn't long after that, that we run into the next thing, which is uh, the, the memory hole as you spoke of.
0: So you parted ways from Fair Mormon after about a year or a year and a half. And at some point after that, you realized that your presence at Fair Mormon on their website had been deleted and sent down the memory hole. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. And it was comprehensive. So In 2013, at the Fair Mormon Conference, uh, I was asked to be part of a panel discussion. It was a panel discussion with uh, Janet Eyring, uh, who had come back to the church after running into the messy issues. Uh, It was Maxine Hanks, who had been excommunicated as part of the September 6th, and she had come back into the church. And uh, Don Bradley who had left the church, became an atheist, then worked his way back through various religions, came back to Christianity, and eventually got baptized back into Mormonism or just became reactivated again in Mormonism. And uh, I was supposed to be part of this panel discussion. And I can't remember if it was Mike Ash or somebody else was asked to moderate it. And at the last minute, that, that fell through. And so they asked me to be on the panel as well as to moderate the session. So I go to, I fly out to Salt Lake City and uh, it was a fun trip. It was a blast too. And went out to Salt Lake City, uh, was part of this Fair Mormon conference, got to stay at the home of a, a really cool listener uh, of the podcast and spend some time with them and their family. Did this uh, Fair Mormon conference, really enjoyed being part of, of that. Uh, got done with this panel discussion and they had video as well as you know, a video audio of that session, as well as a transcript of that session, which I helped put the transcript together as well. And that all went up on the website. And when I parted ways with Fair Mormon and got done with this interview with John Lynch, again, shortly after, what they did was remove me from everything. So every one of my podcast episodes that were part of Fair Mormon's podcast, they deleted, they were gone. Uh, the conversation that I had with Steve Densley to begin our relationship uh when uh, because Densley first interviewed me for the Mormon Faircast just before I jumped in and started helping them with their podcast they wanted the listeners to get to know me before they saw my work showing up on Fair Mormon and so that interview disappeared and then this conference where I'm moderating a session they took the images and they sliced me out of the picture. So whereas it used to show me on the right-hand side moderating and then the panel to the left, uh, now all they did was show the panel to the left and the stand at which I was standing at and talking, that's just sliced away. They took me out of the transcript. They made it so that essentially there was a synopsis of the question being asked, but nothing with my name on it saying that I had asked the questions or what the what the exact wording was of the question that I had I had given. They uh, took off the video. They removed uh, most of the stuff that I was a part of. They had put all these podcast episodes up on YouTube. They had removed most of those. Although about two or three months ago, I found that there was still one on there, and I was kind of chuckling because even as they've attempted to take everything away, there still is uh, I think a trace or two of me uh, working with Fair Mormon on YouTube. But essentially, they went, man, I mean, they went above and beyond to remove every single reference to me from every single facet of anything I did with them. And I I think it's funny, but I also think it points to this idea that in Mormonism, the church and its apologist like to claim that the church doesn't hide anything. And yet, when you remove particular substance from your sight solely for the reason so that people won't find it. I don't know any other way to describe that than you are hiding it. And so Fair Mormon, having removed me from their sight, essentially has hidden the substance of what I discussed from those who visit Fair Mormon. Now, it's their right to do so. But on the other hand, it would be unfair to say that nobody, you know, that they and the church, and again, I know these are two separate entities, but for them to say, we don't hide things, we're balanced, we're fair, we, we talk openly, we, we address the issues. If you're going to be balanced, you can't hide things. And fair Mormon here, I think it's a clear cut instance of them hiding things from those who visit their website or listen to their podcast.
0: Yes, it doesn't seem very fair of them to do that. And here we come to this idea of the Fair Mormon website now, not just being a rabbit hole, as I talked about earlier, but also being a memory hole. Now, we use that term very frequently, especially uh, you and I in relation to the LDS Church, but a memory hole, the idea comes from 1984 by George Orwell. And in brief, a memory hole is any mechanism for the alteration or disappearance of inconvenient, or embarrassing documents, photographs, transcripts, or other records, such as from a website or other archive, particularly as part of an attempt to give the impression that something never happened.
1: Does that sound like a good description of what they did with you? That sounds like a perfect uh, description. And again, it points to the motive, whatever whatever your reasoning is you give. And the reason they gave was they didn't want to give me any more publicity. They did not want people coming onto Fair Mormon's site and finding uh, things where I had participated in, or I had published, or I had put together, and then to allow the people who go to their site to find that, be interested by it, and then go off and find me. On the other hand, though, regardless of what their reason was, the underlying reason To put something out of the view of others, the only way to describe that is hiding things. And so, yes, this was definitely, uh, Bill Real had definitely gone down the memory hole. You
0: went totally down the memory hole. In fact, I would like for the listener to go ahead and do what I'm doing and go to the Fair Mormon website because, believe it or not, I have no problem with driving traffic to their website. I'm not scared of that, Bill the way that they seem to be scared of driving traffic to your website, at least as their ostensible reason, which I don't put a lot of stock in.
1: Hey, and I'll just say too, I'll just say, I would love if every member of the church would go on to Fair Mormon and spend some time there. I don't think that's bad for the uh, purpose of finding the truth and finding the information. In other words, most members are clueless. just how messy this thing gets and fair Mormon while trying to help people stay in the church just as much serves the purpose of opening people up to the fact that things are not as we claim them to be and it gives people a chance to start learning the real history and to many it is a shifting point that helps them to uh, essentially arrive at a full view of the church collectively, and many of those people end up exiting the church.
0: Right, so if you go to the Fair Mormon website, which I encourage all the listeners to do, go to the Fair Mormon website, you'll find a search function on the home page. What I did was I typed in Bill Real, your name in quotation marks, and up come a whole lot of different points and links with your name. Now the first one, and most of them by the way, have to do with Jim Bennett writing about you and the post that he made regarding your multi, multi-part multi conversation with Jim Bennett, which you've already published on Mormon Discussions. But that's the first one where he starts off by saying, so it's been a few days since Bill Real published our 12 hours of recorded conversation. And this is the one where Jim Bennett comes out and makes a public statement on Fair Mormon, basically as a mea culpa, I think, as to why it was that he ended up getting his ass handed to him in your conversations with him and trying to show why it was that he really didn't do as badly as many people thought he did. But that's the first one. The second one now is Bill Real, author at Fair Mormon. I don't know if you're doing this with me, Bill, but you'll love this. Second one is Bill Real, author at Fair Mormon. Well, click on that link, and what you have is a page that says, Bill Real. Sorry, no content matched your criteria. So they've erased you there from that link. And then if you go down to the third one, there's actually a picture of you there. So I know it's the right Bill Real. There you are in a white shirt and tie and gray suit coat. Bill Real, that's you. If I click on that one, oops, page not found. Error 404, the page you are looking for no longer exists. Now, if you keep going down here and go to page two, okay? Yes, here we go. Here's the 2013 Fair Mormon Conference in which you were involved and we go down there and we see all the different people who presented and we go down there toward the bottom and we find out oh here's the panel discussion the loss and rekindling of faith so I click on that and here we have the page that you've been talking about now what had happened Bill because I was aware when this happened because I was watching the message boards I had been listening to your podcast for some time before this although we had not actually made contact as of this point in 2015, when it was discovered that Fair Mormon had scrubbed you out of the memory banks. They took your name out of the panelists. They removed your name from anywhere having to do with any questions or answers, and all they have is what happened at the panel without you. So, there was a huge furor that was caused among the message boards even over at the message boards that is associated or used to be associated with Fair Mormon, the Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board. And so this was very much in the public eye. And what happened as a result of that is that they put on this page, you can see that there is a, a screen where they have the video and you can push play on that and I'll do that here in a second. But right underneath it, it has in brackets, this content has been edited. They did not have that there before. They scrubbed it out without any comment about the content being edited, as if this is exactly the way it happened. And it was only as a result of being caught off first base, scrubbing you out of the record, that they put that in there. This content has been edited. Also, where it says right beneath that panelist, Don Bradley, Janet L. Iring, Maxine Hanks, comma, Bill Real, that's how it is now. Before the Fuhrer, your name wasn't even on there. They had to go back and add it in because they were caught scrubbing the memory banks. By the way, there was another panel discussion, Bill, at this same conference. That is, third down from the top, panel discussion, Charity Never Faileth, Seeking Sisterhood Amid Different Perspectives on Mormon Feminism. And there were five women who sat at that same table. Who then gave their panel discussion. Now if you click on that and look at the video you'll see the camera is pulled back and you can see all the people at the table on all sides of the table, even on the far end of the table where the moderator sits. And what they've done by comparison with your video, the video that you were the moderator in, is they have cropped the video so that you cannot see you sitting there or even standing there next to everybody at the same table. Instead, it's cropped close in. So all you can see are the three panelists. So you are not even shown on the video. And then the thing that really cracked me up was not only do they not want your name on it, not only do they not want your face on it, they don't even want your voice on it, Bill. This is how mad you have made certain people at Fair Mormon. So instead of having you ask the questions, because obviously the panelists are responding to questions being asked, Instead of having your voice asking the questions from off stage where you can't be seen, instead they edit out your question and they put the question in writing on what's like a placard and put it up in the middle of the video. Each time a question is being asked, instead of the audio, they just have a placard up there with the question on it and then it goes to the panelists responding to the question.
1: That's funny. Uh, I'll tell you too. I mean, it, it seems strange if you the, the if you go back one and see the contents of those sessions where you can pick each session to watch. They, they're at least naming that I'm a participant, but I'm not hyperlinked. Everybody else is. So you can go see their biography or you can see other things they've done that are on Fair Mormon. My name is there, but it's just black, no hyperlink. And it's funny to have your name there, but... If anybody was like reading that and then clicking play, they would be like, that's weird. Bill Reel is named as being part of this panel, and yet he doesn't exist at all in this panel. Um, the the great lengths you would have to go to to edit this video the way they did, it, it just, man, it, it makes me chuckle. To me, it's one of the funniest things that I've ever had to... Uh, been involved with that, uh, certainly even to this day, puts a smile on my face. Right. And, And I'll just finish off by saying this other
0: thing. If you look at the placards, right, as you go through the video where they're putting the questions up there in writing and taking out your voice, asking the questions, there is at least one place that I saw where there was a misspelling. It wasn't just a misspelling. When they were typing up the placard, they ran two words together. You can find this at the 11-minute, 10-second mark in the video, where the question that you asked was, what made you susceptible to your faith crisis? Instead of having you ask it, they edit out your voice. They put up the placard, and it says, what made you susceptible to your... The two and the your are run together. There's no space between them. So it's T-O-Y-O-U-R with no space. What made you susceptible to your faith crisis question mark. So there's this obvious misspelling in what they're doing, which suggests to me that either the person who was doing this was not very bright or the person who was doing this was doing this with such passion that it lent itself to making this obvious misspelling. Is this
1: like uh, like three by five index cards with like pencil writing on them or what? It's a, it's the compu- It's the computer
0: version of that. It's just a black screen with white lettering that has the question across it and it appears periodically throughout this video every place where you would be asking the question and then the panelists respond instead of you asking the question it just has this Screen this black screen with the question written across it.
1: Yeah. I obviously it pissed somebody off. So it's really, kind of funny that really this, had, this had happened. Yeah, yes
0: it is. So I want to ask you another question about pissing somebody off and let's go to Brian Hales for a second. All right. Cause I know that you had an experience with Brian Hales, which may have been, I think it was probably after your association with fair Mormon had ended. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, this would have been probably sometime in the next year after. So The best way I can relate this is if we go back into the archives of the podcast, when you find me talking about the figurative uh, Garden of Eden, uh, that would have been right around the time that I left Fair Mormon. And when I put out an episode titled Handshakes and Drawn Swords, uh, that would have been uh, the moment in which uh, Brian Hales had a falling out with me. And I know that Brian Hales is sort of the self-appointed
0: expert on Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy in the LDS Church. He's produced a three-volume encyclopedic work related to the subject and then other books as well, other articles. He has his own website. He's made a number of appearances to talk about the subject. So I think it's fair to say that he does know more about polygamy related to Joseph Smith probably than almost anybody else in the church and he certainly considers himself to be an expert on Joseph Smith's polygamy and not just on the factual basis and the documents about his polygamy but also in the correct way to interpret those documents do you think that would be fair to say
1: um I would certainly say that but I would add to it that uh, you know he had help doing his project he paid Don Bradley to be his research assistant so it was Don Bradley who went into various archives and libraries and went and searched out all these documents. It was Don who did all the legwork, compiled all the notes, handed them in to Brian, and then Brian took those and uh, composed uh, uh, his three-volume set. When I did the episode Handshakes and Drawn Swords, I, I at that point knew that the church's narrative didn't hold up. But I, wanted, I still felt there was value in trying to hold it together in other ways, to give people space to say like, okay, maybe some aspects of this are not literally true, but the church still has value in my life. And I wanted to give them the resources to be able to slow down and process Mormonism. As I recall, your main premise in that podcast, which
0: I think also was a paper that you presented at Sunstone, correct? Yeah, it was the, yeah, same thing was the idea that even if we take it as factual or correct, that an angel appeared to Joseph Smith, maybe once, maybe on multiple occasions, to command him to practice polygamy, or else the angel would kill him with the drawn sword, as the story goes, that it was possible to accept that as factual, and yet to see the angel as possibly not being an angel from God, but an angel from a different source a perhaps evil source asking him to do something evil and that Joseph Smith wasn't able to make that distinction in his mind. He thought that an evil presence or an evil angel asking him to practice polygamy was actually from God. Do I remember that correctly?
1: Yeah, I had just watched the Calderwoods go through this experience in the church where they wanted to rid themselves of section 132 and still be Mormon. And they almost had a disciplinary court. It was threatened against them. And at the last minute, somebody came in and said, okay, you you really got close to the edge here, but we're not going to have a disciplinary council. And it was so painful to the Calderwoods that I think it was kind of the the last straw. And they ended up exiting the church at that point. And all they wanted to do was say, look, I want to be Mormon, but this polygamy thing it, it just rubs me the wrong way at every turn. This I cannot find a way to reconcile Section 132 and to reconcile Joseph Smith's polygamy, which lots of people run into. And I said, like, let's come up with a solution. Let's honor that Joseph Smith's polygamy is irreconcilable while still giving people a space to hold on to Mormonism. And you've got this Section 129 uh, is the DNC section where Joseph says, Look, there's good angels, there's bad angels, good spirits, bad spirits. The only way to discern is to ask the spirit to shake your hand. Good spirits will refuse, bad spirits will lie to you, essentially trying to deceive you. They will attempt to shake your hand, but there will be nothing there. So Joseph gives you this way to discern spirits. We are not told when Joseph encounters the angel with a drawn sword, we are given no commentary about Joseph attempting to shake the spirit's hand. Now, granted to the listener, let's grant it. This is all absurd. But again, Joseph Smith establishes the rules. And so if we're going to show these things, we have to play by the rules. So the rule is to attempt a handshake. If the angel with a drawn sword and Joseph Smith never attempt to shake hands, if Joseph never poses the question like, hey, will you put your sword down for a second and shake my hand and let me see if you're a good spirit or bad spirit, then it is absolutely on the table of possibilities that that spirit was not a good spirit. If that spirit's not a good spirit, then DNC 132 and all of polygamy then comes out of that hence giving us permission to discard section 132. If a member, if their only real problem, and it's a real problem for them, is Joseph Smith's polygamy, then this gives them a way to stay in the church longer and having essentially allowed themselves to dismiss Joseph Smith's polygamy as not from God. So I put out this episode. The very next day, And it was by the time, by the time this happens too, I'm living out here in Southern Utah. I'm working for Family Pond. I'm training at their main store on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, as I'm working that day, I see on my phone, because I get a notification when people set up uh, a subscription. I see that Laura Hales sets up a subscription that day. She only pays for one month. I think it's three bucks at the time. In fact, I think it's still 3 bucks a month. And so she pays the $3, so I know exactly what's going on. She wants to listen to this Handshakes and Drawn Swords episode. That night, I get a message from Brian Hales demanding that I take that episode down. Yeah, and, and again, I don't know. I can go back and try to find these emails and share these in the links. I don't have a problem with people seeing these conversations. And I say, no, I'm not taking that down. And he then that night, writes up a response to me. And then the next day or two, I get another email from Brian Hales where he says, look, I have written a response to you uh, because you refused to take this episode down. and I am, And it essentially is going to poke holes in what I have said. He ends up never publishing it, but he does send me a copy of it. And in this, he poses why my theory doesn't work. What I then did was I went out and did Handshakes and Drawn Swords Part 2. And if you listen to those two episodes, Part 2, every single thing I address in Part 2 are the questions or comments that he raises in his paper. And I think, and again, I'm biased, but I think I address every one of his concerns flawlessly. Like, when I'm done... All of it, he doesn't really have a leg to stand on. And my potential theory is absolutely plausible and possible with no holes in it. And so then what I did was I went to Sunstone that year and I did a presentation on handshakes and drawn swords where I essentially combine the two episodes together and I tell people the theory And I tell people what the concerns are that others have raised about the theory. And then I answer each one of those concerns, removing any possible uh, hole to that theory. And what I would suggest is I have two things. One is that I recorded that Sunstone conversation before I went to Sunstone. In other words, I did kind of a run, a rough, dry run through it. And that I shared as an episode on the podcast. It's essentially the Handshakes and Drawn Swords Sunstone presentation. But that's just me in my office, just recording on my microphone. If you go to Sunstone and purchase the audio from that session, you'll hear it as I gave it there in the room. Where, when I give it there in the room, Van Hale is sitting in the back of the room. Uh, RFM, do you know who Van Hale is? Mormon miscellaneous. Yes, Mormon miscellaneous. This is kind of the the first guy on the airwaves talking about the controversies of Mormonism. Uh, He's in the back of the room and I give this entire presentation. It's really fun to watch or to listen to. When I get done, Van Hale is pissed at my theory. And so he ends up throwing his hand up in the air like three or four times. And all of this is on the audio. He throws his hand up three or four times and pushes back. And as I'm essentially taking every one of his concerns and answering them, if the video's there, and I don't know if the video's there, but the audio certainly is, the rest of the room is shaking their head up and down, like they are in full agreement with me. And it's kind of fun to watch this this guy who's well known in Mormonism, and and a good guy, um, but he is bothered by this theory that I'm posing. He doesn't want there to be this kind of space. And he's pushing back with questions and concerns, and I'm just answering every one of them flawlessly. Um, and, and after the thing was over, several people came up and said, Bill, like, I get that this theory is, it's like, like a, there's like a small chance that this is it. The church is probably not what it claims to be, or we have to accept that all of this polygamy came from God. But man, did you do a great job offering this as a, as a small way to put this back together. And, uh, and I, I, I would love, I mean, if it listeners, again, if they want to go purchase it, it helps out Sunstone. Lindsay Hansen Park will be appreciative. Uh, but I think it's a fascinating audio to listen to as Van Hale is pushing back against me throughout this uh, session. So Brian Hales ends up essentially asking that I take this down. He comes out with this response. I answer the response. And from that point forward, I mean, I've got pictures of Brian wearing my Mormon discussion shirt. Uh, he, he purchased one of those and, uh, he was a supporter of the podcast financially. And we get to this part where he just doesn't want me to use the picture of him in the shirt. He doesn't want me to ever talk to him again. He doesn't want anything to do with me. And then I've had run-ins with his wife as well, uh, where for whatever reason and various points of doing the podcast, she'll suddenly come on and make a harsh comment or, or attack me personally. And one of the things that she did was on the podcast on on Facebook, she went on one of my Facebook posts and I like people commenting. I welcome it. I think I'm pretty fair at allowing the full breadth of conversation. And she comes on at some point after I had uh, publicized one of my episodes and she tried to point the people on my Facebook page back to her podcast where she was having a similar discussion. And I'm okay with that. But it certainly should be balanced in that when I go onto her page and put a link to something I'm talking about that's similar to what she's discussing, it sh- certainly should be allowed to sit there just as fairly. Um, and so like a week later, I put something on hers and she removed it immediately. And so at that point, I reached out to her privately in email and said, like, that doesn't seem fair. Like you you felt like it would be okay for you to put something on my Facebook page point people towards your podcast, but if I tried to do the same thing, it wasn't allowed to sit there. And in the process of this conversation, uh, the ground she held, it became obvious that she was being dishonest. Um, she was she was being deceptive about her reasons, and it was evident uh, in the conversation. Again, I'll try to go back and find those. I think the listeners, if they understood all these things that go on behind the scenes, would recognize just how deceptive and dishonest, some of these apologetics are. Um, not just the apologists, but the arguments and the, the ways in which they're trying to reconcile these issues. It seems dishonest. Uh, I've had other run-ins. I, I, uh, Brian Hales was having a conversation about the 1886 revelation from John Taylor. And I went on... By the way, Bill,
0: yes, for our audience, that would be the revelation that said that plural marriage would never be done away with. Correct.
1: Yeah, that is John Taylor being spoken to in the first person by Jesus Christ himself. The the revelation starts off with John, my son. I am the the Lord and Savior of the world, something along those lines. And it is Jesus telling John Taylor in 1886 that polygamy can never be done away with, that it is part of the new and everlasting covenant, and it cannot be sent away. And that, that revelation was never publicized, but it becomes a big deal, especially looking forward to 1890 in the way that uh, Wilford Woodruff begins to to walk away from polygamy. Four and it years also, later. Yeah, four years four later. four years later. Without Jesus talking in the first person, by the way. And it becomes a big deal when John Taylor's son, John W. Taylor, and, uh, and Matthias Cowley, Uh, are excommunicated, or Matthew kelly I forget. One's the father and one's the son. And it becomes a a big deal at John W. Taylor's disciplinary court. So as Brian Hales is trying to offer a reconciled approach to uh, the 1886 revelation, there are logical questions that are being begged to be asked. And I ask them, they're logical. They walk Brian Hales' into uh, a corner where he's going to have to take a position that is either going to be absurd or it's going to be bad on the church. And he essentially deletes my question, refuses to answer it, says that he's answered it in this other place, which he doesn't. He has not. And again, it, it becomes apparent to me that in these conversations, that's why the Jim Bennett conversation was so important, by the way, Because these, the apologists, the people defending the church, they only want to address these issues on their terms and in a vacuum. They never want to sit down and have a conversation where the person across the table knows the issue well enough to know what questions to follow up with, because those questions will walk the apologist into the bad logic of their argument and their argument, their reconciliation will become irrational. And so Brian Hales in this instance does this very thing. Um, Every single instance where Laura or Brian or Steve Densley or John Lynch, any of these guys jump in, jump on my Facebook page or they make an argument somewhere where I follow up with a question. They always walk away They all of a sudden become too busy they suddenly don't have enough time. They suddenly don't have enough energy. It reminds me of your conversation about Dan Peterson, where Dan Peterson promises on multiple occasions to address the things you or I say on our podcast or in written post. And he promises at some point, he is, he's infuriated with how we've misrepresented him. And he promises to tell his leadership or his listenership and his readership what it is that we've misrepresented him about. And then what happens, RFM? He never gets around to doing anything because he's just too busy. Everybody's too busy when the argument walks him into a corner. Everybody's too busy when the questions mean that their logic is irrational. And it becomes infuriating. And this is the game that Brian and Laura have played over and over again.
0: I want to make a couple of points here. The first one is a point of order. You'd mentioned Carson and Marissa Calderwood. They actually did get excommunicated at a disciplinary council, but I know that there was another couple and I don't remember their name that you were talking about that did make an issue about section 132 who ended up not going to a disciplinary council. So that was just sort of a point of order there because I'm sure we would get comments about that, about the Calderwoods. But to the point that you raised, it is amazing to me that Brian Hale's response to something that You posted about polygamy was not, I disagree with you because of A, B, and C, Bill, and let's have a discussion about it and let's present the evidence and let's let the listener or the reader make their own decision. No, instead, his initial response, his knee jerk reaction to you, is to demand that you take down the podcast that has stuff in it that he disagrees with.
1: Yeah, and it goes one step further than that. When I respond that I'm not going to take it down, I have him writing his actual email where he says in his exact words, I wish your podcast would die. So that's how much it meant to him. That's how infuriated he was that there was this other idea out there that he disagreed with and that I wouldn't remove that idea from the the internet that he was so infuriated that he wished to me that my podcast would die.
0: Well, if I could just speak to Brian Hales directly, Brian, who do you think you are to be demanding that somebody else remove information that you disagree with just because you disagree with it? Who do you think you are? And how much confidence do you have in your own position if you feel so threatened by somebody else writing a different viewpoint. And I think it speaks to a larger issue as well, Bill, because I don't want to say that all apologists are as insecure as Brian Hales is, but he's not the only one. And I see this type of thing over and over again, which is that when an apologist feels threatened by what somebody else writes or says, their knee-jerk reaction is, is to get rid of the other person or what it is they wrote or what it is they said. Not only did Brian Hale say this to you, but also it seems to be a similar thing to what Fair Mormon did to you on their website.
1: Yeah, and I, and I also just want to add, you were right. I had I mentioned the Calderwoods. I just looked it up really quick. It was Kirk and Lindsay Van Allen who had the serious issue with Section 132, who were threatened with disciplinary action, and at the last minute, that disciplinary action was withdrawn. But the story is the same. It was essentially the last straw for them, uh, and they, they soon after exited the church.
0: I'm glad we corrected the record on that. I think that we will let this podcast go up and see what Brian Hales has to say to me about this podcast and whether he demands that it be taken down because I can guarantee you right now Brian you can save your breath because I'm not taking it down
1: yeah and there's so much that goes into all of this journey it's not just you know Brian and Laura it's not just Steve Densley you you've got guys like John Lynch who are on the record saying that they that fair Mormon helps out with the strengthening church members committee
3: does the church ever ask for your help on anything?
4: There have been times when they have asked us specifically about movements um, or about individuals and what we know about their activity online, that sort of thing. And, of course, when when we're aware of it, uh, we'll share information as appropriate.
1: I think that's an important note to make in this whole process, and here's why. Earlier, we we're talking about Fair Mormon's priority being to protect the church, to, to protect its good name. Now, imagine you're a questioner. You have discovered that things don't add up, and you reach out to Fair Mormon, and you, you give them your real name. You, you tell them, hey, I'm a member of the such-and-such such ward, and I'm trying to resolve the messiness of this, this stuff I'm discovering. John Lynch has acknowledged on the record that Fair Mormon helps out the church, and it can be pretty easily the connection drawn that they help out the Strengthening Church Members Committee because John says sometimes the church reaches out to us wanting information on critics of the church, people who are raising a critical voice both within and outside of the church. In other words, members who are having conversations about the messy issues and saying that they can't figure out how it adds up. John admits in this audio, John Lynch admits that when the church wants information on these voices, John Lynch and the rest of Fair Mormon are happy to cooperate with the Strengthening Church Members Committee.
4: Does the church ever ask for your help on anything? There have been times when they have asked us specifically about movements um, or about individuals and what we know about their activity online, that sort of thing. And of course, when when we're aware of it, uh, we'll share information as appropriate.
1: So if you are a member and you find this messiness irreconcilable and you reach out to Fair Mormon and you ask these questions, but you are adamant that the unsatisfactory answers don't work, if you are that pointed that you're willing to say like, look, you just said this And that doesn't add up for me. This still is a problem. John Lynch is acknowledging that there is a chance that he's gonna take your name and he's gonna send it on to the church so that they can keep a closer eye on you. And there's no doubt in my mind, I have heard firsthand from various people that there are files collected. At the church headquarters on these critical voices. And so, whether you're against the LGBT policies of the church, and maybe you're a member of Mama Dragons, uh, maybe you have uh, written a book that talks about how messy some of these issues are, the church has a file on every one of these voices. The Strengthening Church Member Co- uh, Committee, their primary role is to scour the internet and to scour various venues of media and anybody inside or outside of the church that is critical. By the way, Elder Corbridge was part of this committee. Anything they find of a critical voice inside or outside the church, there is a file started on those people and kept at the church office building. So we've already
0: played the audio twice from John Lynch about how he and the people at FAIR are only too happy to gather information and give it to the church on members who are not towing the party
1: line who is John Lynch again in the structure of Fairbill? He is third in command. Scott Gordon is the president of Fair Mormon. And Steve Densley is the vice president. And John Lynch is kind of the, the third in command. I forget what his official title is, but that's that's effectively where he serves. And, and then there's other top leadership, Mike Ash being one of those. Uh, other well-known names, Stephen Smoot, um, Neil Rapley. Uh, those are other folks who are very important in the leadership of uh, Fair Mormon, who have a, a larger voice than maybe just the average members uh, of that organization. And so John Lynch is kind of the third guy, and it should be noted, he's having this conversation with John Dillon's, uh sister. I think it's Julianne Dillon or Julie Delin. and they're having this conversation. I am the background context of why they're having it. It's right after uh, I s- uh, separate ways from Fair Mormon. It's immediately following the conversation that me and John Lynch had. And it's like a couple of weeks later where him uh, and John Dolan's sister have a conversation about how the Fair Mormon handles critics of the church. Meaning a.k.a. Bill Reel. And so if you understand that context, we'll try to find the entire conversation, uh, but we'll, like you said, we'll put that little audio bit in here so people can hear it. I went back and I found this podcast,
0: Bill, and actually the timing is fascinating. First off, this is the Mormon Faircast. This is Fair Mormons podcast that John Lynch is appearing on. And the date of this podcast is December 10th, 2015. Now here's the reason that's important. It first came to the public's attention that Fair Mormon had scrubbed the record of any trace of you, Bill Reel, in the second part of November 2015. And as I said before, this caused a furor, and it was brought to the attention over at the Fair Mormon Message Board, the Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Message Board. And apparently, this caused so much backlash for the people at Fair Mormon that within a few weeks, December 10th, 2015, they decided they had to have a special episode with John Lynch explaining why it is that they took off the information related to you and scrubbed the memory banks of any trace of you. This is a four-minute clip, but when you know it's about you, Bill Reel, it takes on new interest. So as I say, this is a four-minute clip, but it is absolutely fascinating when you know that this hypothetical person that John Lynch is talking about Having his information removed from the Fair Mormon website is actually you, Bill Real. So here's John Lynch doing his best to give an explanation as to why it is that it's okay that they've removed every reference to you from their website. And remember, the only reason they're doing this is because it was brought to the public's attention. Now, things were going on behind the scene where it appeared that this had actually happened several months earlier. In other words, it had been some time since they had removed any reference to you from the Fair Mormon webpage. But it wasn't important enough at that time to have an episode talking about why they did it. In fact, they probably never would have had an episode talking about why they did it, except for the furor it caused when they were caught doing it. And I am certain that if they had not been caught scrubbing you from the memory banks, they never would have had this episode at all. So here is the four-minute clip. We will first play the introduction to this Fair Mormon podcast, which will identify the host as well as John Lynch being the person who is interviewed. And then after we play that brief introduction, we will go immediately to the four-minute clip. Play the tape.
3: Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I am your host, Julianne Delin Hatton. Today's guest is John Lynch. He is a Silicon Valley executive who is married with four children. He is also the chairman of the board of Fair Mormon, as well as a counselor to the bishop of his congregation. He has been associated with Fair since 1997. Welcome to the Mormon Faircast.
4: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here.
3: You recently authored a statement about editing content in fair mormon literature and podcasts on the blog tell me about this
4: well we thought it was important to make it clear that what we're looking to do as an organization is to help individuals of faith we're not here to promote a particular individual or you know their own properties all of our volunteers for example not all of them, but many of them are authors in their own right. Many of them contribute articles on other properties. And so or are podcasters, that sort of thing. And so when an individual volunteers for us, we really keep it anonymous. I mean, for the most part, other than, than blogs and podcasts where it's almost necessary to attribute um, content to an author, most of our content is anonymous. We have over, over 6,000 articles within our wiki that address criticisms, some some of them from multiple angles of the church, and none of that content is attributed. The reason for that is that, number one, there are typically multiple contributors, but number two, we're not here about ourselves. We're here to help the church and to sustain it and to defend it. When an individual comes and contributes for us then, we really want the focus to be on the faith and the answers that we provide. So we wanted to clarify that sometimes when an individual comes in and they are attributed, if they happen to take um, a path outside in their, in their own um, personal work, when they're podcasting or blogging, when that activity does not reflect positively on our mission, we, we don't want Fair Mormon to be seen as endorsing that content, which is not produced on our behalf, um, to seem to be endorsed by us, if that makes any sense.
0: If I can just break in here a second and say, no, John Lynch, that does not make any sense to me. If you want to distance yourself from the content that Bill Real is posting elsewhere. Why go to all the trouble of flushing him down the memory hole and bleach bidding him from your entire website when you could just post a simple disclaimer on the front page? Back to the interview.
3: It sounds like you're very careful about the content that Fair Mormon endorses. And it's probably hard to keep the doctrine pure, as it were, with such a variety of people who join, who come in and out, flow in and out of the organization with such a variety of backgrounds.
4: Yeah, that's exactly correct, and not everybody um, you know, maintains their own personal path, right? A person might come in at one point in, in their personal faith journey and be gung-ho about helping to sustain and defend the church, and then for whatever reason, personal circumstances or what have you, might take a differing opinion later. And they might actually um, become critical. And sometimes it's not always, you know, global. It might be a, just they, they, they don't necessarily agree with the church on one particular issue. And it's, you know, generally speaking, we try and just keep ourselves separate from them and, and take their content on face value. But there are times when the comments outside of FAIR, the public statements, can be so contrary to the mission of FAIR that we feel it's necessary to change things, right? To to remove anything that might imply an endorsement of this contrary content, this content that's contrary to our mission – and so we'll make changes. Sometimes we'll remove content. Sometimes we'll, um, we'll change things. But for the most part, you know, we're constantly changing. The circumstances are changing. So all of our volunteers realize that content is, is dynamic. We're not going to keep it and put it up, and it's going to be there forever anyway. So, you know, from that standpoint, it really isn't a problem. For, the, for 99.9% of the, of the
0: content that we use, it's, it's, it's not been an issue. Really? Okay. Wow. So there you have John Lynch's own non-explanation explanation explanation in response to the furor that was caused when he was caught red-handed flushing any reference to Bill Reel down the memory hole at the Fair Mormon webpage. Okay, really good. Well, I've certainly kept you long enough. I know that you have to get busy with your workday, but I want to thank you for coming on Radio Free Mormon to share your experiences with Fair Mormon.
1: Yeah, I think it's important that people understand what goes on behind the scenes. And if I can just put a little last plug in, RFM, we've we've recently set it up so that donations can be made to Radio Free Mormon. I just want to put out, people don't understand this. You and I talk a lot behind the scenes. You put a lot of time into your podcast. You put a lot of uh, work, a lot of research. Um, I know it takes you some time to record. I know it takes you some time to edit. Uh, you really do invest yourself into it, and, and you're working a full time job. You're a, you're a lawyer. Um, you obviously have a full plate just with your career, and and then as a labor of love, you're you're doing Radio Free Mormon, and Radio Free Mormon won the best podcast of the year with the Brody Awards, and I think that speaks volumes. I know the the venue itself of the Brody Awards is really small. But I think it acknowledges, as people voted on that stuff, that you're well listened to. And as I look behind the scenes at the number of downloads that my podcast gets versus other podcasts under the umbrella, your podcast gets the most downloads, gets the most uh, listenership. And I want to make sure that listeners realize that you invest a lot of time and energy into what you do. And I know you love to do it, and I know you enjoy doing it. But I think it's time that we reach out to you, the listener, and encourage you, if you're liking the kind of content that RFM does, it's my little personal plea as kind of the, the operator of Mormon discussion as an umbrella, that I you know just let you as a listener know, like, if you like what Radio Free Mormon's doing, my suggestion would be to go on to his website, radiofreemormon.org, click the donate button, and, uh, and set up a recurring donation. It can be something small, five bucks a month. Uh, if you've got more, you know, desire than that, great. Throw in a hundred dollars, throw in a thousand dollars. I've had people do those kinds of amounts in the past. But what I want to see happen R F M is that because podcasting's tough and people get burnt out, uh, and unless there's some type of uh, financial uh, benefit, eventually all of us go like, this just isn't worth it. I'm, I'm just exhausted. And so I hope people will uh, will say thank you uh, for what you're doing by going on and, and just giving some type of donation and and making it, uh, making it worthwhile for you to continue doing this for years and years is my hope.
0: Well, thank you, Bill. I will tell the audience that behind the scenes, whenever you and I have these conversations, I always talk about it as being evening because that seems so much more romantic, I suppose. But actually, we generally have our conversations very early in the morning. And because of the time difference, I am up, at 4.30 in the morning in order to get to work, get some last-minute show prep done, and be ready to record with you. And that was the case this morning. So it's certainly a labor of love. But it is also something that I would encourage listeners to make a contribution, whatever contribution you can make. Please do that now. To quote Bill Murray from Ghostbusters, no job is too big, no fee is too big. (laughs) Well, you... (laughs) Anyway, I want to close out this podcast by playing a hit song by Gene Knight from 1971. This one is in honor of John Lynch and all the good people at Fair Mormon who flushed you down the memory hole, as well as in honor of Brian Hales, who thinks it's okay to demand that you remove a podcast because you said things that he disagreed with. Here is Gene Knight from 1971 with her smash hit, Mr. Big Stuff. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.